0: Welcome to The Geek's Guide
1: to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hi, I'm John Joseph Adams. I'm the editor and now publisher of Lightspeed Magazine. I'm also the editor of several anthologies, uh, several of which are coming out in 2012, including Under the Moons of Mars, which features stories inspired by the Barsoom Saga by Edgar Rice Burroughs, Armored, which is about powered armored soldiers in Mecca, and The Mad Scientist Guide to World Domination, which is about mad scientists and evil geniuses trying to take over the world. My latest book to come out was Lightspeed Year One, which collects all of the fiction published in the first year of Lightspeed. And I'm David Barr Kirtley. I'm the author of many short stories,
2: including Power Armor, A Love Story about an inventor from the future who never takes off his invincible armor for fear of a lurking assassin. The story will appear in March in John's anthology Armored from Band Books. And this is the first episode of Geek's Guide that we're producing independently and releasing here at geeksguideshow.com. Geek's Guide is currently 100% listener-supported, so if you like the show and want it to continue, please consider making a donation by heading over to geeksguideshow.com and clicking on the PayPal button in the upper right-hand corner of the page or click on the advertising button to find out how you can support the show as a sponsor or host site.
1: And also, please tell your friends to head over to geeksguideshow.com and check out this new episode. The more traffic we get, the more likely we are to keep releasing episodes there. Also, this new episode features part two of our discussion with Matt London about upcoming movie adaptations. You don't need to listen to part one to follow this discussion, but if you're interested in the topic, you might want to listen to episode 51, where we covered the forthcoming adaptations of A Princess of Mars, Ender's Game, and The Hobbit.
2: And our guest today is Ian MacDonald. He's a British science fiction author whose novels include River of Gods, Brazil, and The Dervish House. His most recent book, Planes Runner, is the first in a series of YA adventures. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ian MacDonald. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. All right, so first of all, you know, in recent years you've been writing these science fiction books set in countries like India, Turkey, and Brazil. Just how did you come to write those books, and what were some of your goals
0: for them? I mean, I've been kind of interested in fiction in the developing world for quite some time. I mean, I live just outside Belfast in Northern Ireland. It's one of those places that's kind of on the periphery of things. In a sense, it's kind of, in many ways, it's kind of one of the least science fictional places in the world to grow up in. In another sense, it's the perfect preparation for life in the 21st century. Living through uh, 30 years of um, civil, religious, and political violence is it, a very good prep for the way for the way I, I i kind of feel that the 21st century is going to go but it's never really a terribly science fictional place so in a sense to write science fiction i'm always having to look somewhere outside my own country i've written science fiction in northern ireland uh, set in northern ireland but I, but 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 i find myself very much looking outside the country and so if everywhere is foreign you might as well go somewhere interesting i, I mean i the United States is as foreign to me as, say, India or Turkey or Brazil is. We, we just speak a common language, and even that's fairly tenuous. But um, So with that kind of sense of not being at the center of things, of being very much on the periphery, it kind of made me look for interesting places where the future is happening as well. Um, I mean, I kind of started globalizing probably way back in the 1990s with the, what's known as the Chaga Saga, Evolution Shore and Carinja and uh, uh, Tendeleo's story, the, the novella, which were all set in East Africa. And that kind of got me thinking of other places where the future's arriving that isn't necessarily the West and doesn't, and doesn't subscribe to Western thinking or values. And that got me thinking in, in a kind of, well, I was going to say a flash of revelation, but it was actually over a long a long boozy lunch Sweet. of champagne with my as as you do <laughs> as you do with my former editor john Gerald, and we got talking about novels about india you know because it's the great it's the place for the great social novel in a sense a, a big fat social novel is a fantastic way to explore a science fictional future um you you're, you're writing about an entire world not just some technological change but you're writing about how that change works through an entire society at every level from top to bottom. And we got thinking about, you know, talking about the great novels about India, you know, A Suitable Boy, um, and uh, The God of Small Things, uh, The uh, Midnight's Children, all the big novels about India. And it kind of came to us that nobody had kind of done the big, the big science fiction novel set in India. I tend to get the feeling that in the US, if USAans think about Asia, it's always China, Korea, Japan. Whereas on our side of the Atlantic, we think of Asia, we think of South South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And so, in the sense, it had it had never seemed to have really appeared on American science fiction radar. So I I, I kind of saw a, a gap in the market, which I fully exploited, and that kind of led to River of Gods, and that got me thinking about other places, you know, other interesting burgeoning economies that are going to be major players in the coming century. And Brazil was interesting. And um, Turkey was interesting because it's a complete flip side of colonialism. We kind of tend to think as kind of a it's a white man's thing colonialism well, no, it's not um The Turks ran the Ottoman Empire for eight hundred years and they had their own painful and complex and ongoing decolonization program as much as the British Empire did and That seemed to be an interesting kind of flip side to a lot of the fairly obvious glib stuff that's being done at the moment to actually move it to another colonial power, uh, Turkey. And that's quite a long answer, actually. I haven't, I haven't really, really kind, of touched, kind of touched on the science fictional themes yet. Well, I mean, you just said you haven't touched as much on the science fictional
2: themes. I mean, could you talk about some of those science fictional themes that you brought to, to some of those countries?
0: Yeah, I mean, for uh, for River of Gods, it was artificial intelligence. I mean, I've been reading quite a bit about A.I., the way we, we seem to think about AI is it's going to be like us. It's, it's a little homunculus. It's a little miniature human being brain in a box. And it will think the way we think. And it will think the things we think. And it will react the way we react to things. And this didn't seem terribly convincing to me because everything that makes us human, in a sense, is a response in many ways to the environment we we we, li- we live in, the social environment the physical environment. Our intelligence has evolved in response to a, a fairly specific set of criteria and constraints. A disembodied brain in a box has none of those physical constraints. In a sense, it would be a kind of a uh, a copy of an intelligence rather than an intelligence in its own right. It started me thinking about, well, what are the differences between the way an artificial, artificial intelligence might work and a human intelligence might work? What are the different constraints, the different evolution evolutionary factors? I mean, at the moment, such computer intelligence as we have can only, can in a sense only move if it's carried around by a human being in the form of a laptop or if it copies itself to another platform. And then it can make endless copies of itself, whereas our intelligence is trapped in one place for one time and the information degrades with time. And the more I kind of got into this and I'd have been thinking about India for quite some time, the more it's the more it seemed to in some ways reflect uh Hindu thinking and the entire Hindu pantheon of small gods that kind of build up into bigger gods, you know, that kind of build up into even bigger gods and then you come and then and, and then you come to the big three the three Murthy, the kind of Hindu Trinity at the top, and likewise how that cascades down as well. And that's kind of rather pleased me aesthetically, you know, that I had kind of a, a nice non-Western model for how artificial intelligence might work. That huge artificial intelligence might, might be composed up of of thousands of smaller sub-ones, none of which were totally conscious that they were part of a bigger consciousness. Um, and there's, and there's a lot of other stuff as well, because I wanted to draw a portrait of a, of a society rather than just have, you know, In the classic science fiction way of exploring one idea, one novum, and kind of you know playing playing it out through different through different characters without lives, I wanted to go widescreen, widescreen and top to bottom, you know, and write that big kind of Indian social novel of the future. Um, For Brazil, uh, I I looked at quantum computing and 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 the many worlds theory, which I kind of come back to in the kids book. And then in Turkey, I wanted to have a think about nanotech, nanotechnology and the kind of nanotechnology we're likely to get rather than magical assemblers or fabby replicators and things like that. While I was researching the whole sense of, of things that scale down, things that scale, it's, it's all scale. It's the same thing. It's things that scale down, things that scale up. I came across a, an exhibition in the British Museum in London of relig- of religious writing. And they had this Sephardic Jewish micrography, it's called. A, yes, my, micrography. Which is a big letter, a big Hebrew letter. And but the body of the letter is made up or that one letter is made up from lots of smaller letters. And then the bodies of those smaller letters are made up from smaller letters, yes. So it's kind of it's kind of letters and writing all the way down. And that kind of struck me as an interesting way to think about Kind of technologies to, to give a kind of slightly kind of Turkish perspective on things, uh, a Central Asian, um, Middle Eastern perspective on things to, to to think of it in terms of the big composer of the small and the small building into the big.
2: So, what kind of response have you gotten from readers in India and Turkey and Brazil?
0: Pretty good. Um, if I get grumbled, they're usually from Westerners. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, uh, I've, I've seen several nice reviews from India where they say, you know. Not bad for Agora, which is, um, you know, a, a foreigner or a white guy, and and that, and that, I take as praise indeed. Actually, Brazil I found much harder to get an angle with, an angle on. Actually, I'm not sure it's quite as successful. Um, the simple reason of it's much, much, it's much, much easier in many ways more interesting to write about quite a conservative society than to write about quite a free going and liberal society. In conservative society, you've your characters have much more to work against and play against, and um, it's actually much much easier and much more fun to write. Um, now, the book's sold in Turkey. Uh, haven't seen an edition of it yet, uh, but uh, we shall see. I, I think I managed to vaguely insult Ataturk, possibly, which which is kind of one of, one of the, the sins against the Holy Spirit. Um haven't had too much feedback on that yet.
1: Uh, so you spent most of your life uh, living in Belfast. Uh, how, how has that environment shaped your outlook and your writing?
0: Oh yeah, Um, I think as I said earlier, it, it is like a perfect preparation for life in the twenty-first century. Um We're becoming one big Belfast out there. Uh We've had our bags searched on planes and intrusive body searches and frisking. We've had that for about thirty years, so we're so we're so we're all well used to it. In fact, you, you used to get searched going into shops, quick pat down as you went in, just to make sure you weren't carrying incendiaries or anything bigger, and we got so used to it. That whenever you went to London, you go into a shop and for a moment you think, oh, and then you catch yourself about to stand to be frisked by somebody and then realize that that people didn't do that. In the early days when there were no warning bombs, yes, they had no warning car bombs. uh, It was scary. Everyone was a target then. Uh, There was an event called uh, Bloody Friday. I think we've had possibly every bloody day of the bloody week now in Northern Ireland. This is a bloody Sunday. But there was a bloody Friday where the provisional IRA left a series of car bombs around in a ring around central Belfast. And my ex-wife and her mother were shopping in Belfast when the bombs went off one after another. And they didn't know where to go because you didn't know where the next bomb was going off. And she said it was one of the most terrifying things in her life. There were thousands of people trapped in the centre of Belfast trying to get out, but not knowing when the next bomb would go off. The IRA fairly quickly wised up after that because um randomly terror bombing civilians does not win you the hearts and does, does not win win hearts and minds. And it certainly didn't impress um uh, funding bodies in the in, in the United States as well. I've said this before and I've, I've been questioned on it by a few people, but, but I firmly stand by it that uh, Northern Ireland is a great post-colonial issue. Um, Ireland was Britain's first and probably last colony. And certainly the, the end game of empire is being played out there.
2: And, and so do you see that sort of coming through in your writing in any way?
0: It skews the way I look at things. I'm, I'm interested in societies with internal conflicts like Northern Ireland. And I'm interested in political, social, religious divides where you have two different societies, two different religions rubbing up against each other, two different belief systems. Um, you have tension and where you have tension, you have drama and where you have drama, you have a story. So I'm, I'm kind of naturally drawn to the chaotic, let's say.
2: Okay, so on on Wikipedia, it says that you sold your first story to a local Belfast magazine when you were 22. Uh, what was that story, and what was the magazine?
0: The magazine was called Extro. It was a very glossy, very shiny uh, local local science fiction magazine run by a guy called Paul Campbell. Um, the story is called The Island of the Dead. It, it actually appears in my first ever collection, Empire Dreams, which is going way, way back to about, to about 1988 that came out. Um, it was the first story I ever wrote. Uh, I sold it to him, and he paid me, and he paid me in cash in a bar in Belfast, and shook my hand. If only all business was done like okay. that. And I and I went I, and I went and I bought a guitar with the money, which is the kind of thing you do at twenty-two. Is
2: there is there a sort of a active science fiction scene in Belfast?
0: We do have the biggest the biggest genre media event on the planet going on at the moment. We're filming Game of Thrones in oh, Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah, it's just down the road from us, uh, in the old paint hall. The paint hall studio is down in the Belfast docks. It's, um, it's right beside the dock where they built the Titanic, actually. Um mm-hmm. it's, it's called the paint hall because they used to paint bits of ships in it. And, and a lot of the interior sets are all done in the paint hall. A lot of the exteriors are out and about around Northern Ireland. Um, it's, it's, it's quite fun playing spot in the location, <laughs> actually. Um and and a lot of them in Malta and virtually everyone I know has been an extra in Game of Thrones as well.
2: Well, yeah. And speaking of TV shows, could you tell us about how you worked on Sesame Street?
0: I was part of a production company, and the um, the company I was with it, it was kind of a new start television production company. We wanted to get into children's television, and we'd uh, a, a tender came in from Sesame Workshop they wanted to do sesame street in northern ireland now people usually fall about laughing when i say this but it's absolutely true um they've they've done versions of sesame street all over the world i think it's 138 nations to any place they feel need, need needs a bit of the sesame message so it's paternalism but it's paternalism with nice puppets basically um and of course you know you want to work with sesame workshop so we devised a pitch and we got the gig And we got to design our own muppets, and we had them built by the Jim Henson Creature Workshop. And there's that thrilling moment you get when you go into the, when you go into the office, and there's a big black box, three about three foot square, big black box thing sitting in the middle of the floor. And you take off the bands, snap off the bands, take the lid off, and inside, under all the bubble wrap, there is your muppets. And of course the first, the first thing you do is of course you have to put your hand in the damn thing and then run around the office muppeting and muppeting away at everyone. But the thing they don't tell you actually is is that after, after you've done a a series of fairly intensive high energy muppeteering, the inside of a muppet smells simply unbelievable. Some, it's like some evil mutant crab has kind of crawled up inside it. Uh, covered itself in yogurt and then died and left itself to rot inside this, and that's kind of what it smells like. It's like, it's like kind of <laughs> it's like it's like a combination of really bad athlete's foot and BO all together, and like just pure locker room. That is what the inside of a muffet smells like. So next time you see Elmo, like popping around, just 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 think what he must smell like inside. Actually, it must be really foul.
1: Uh, so your new book is a YA novel called Planes Runner. Uh, can you tell us what that's about?
0: Yeah, um, our hero Everett The dad gets kidnapped on the streets of London five days before Christmas. Uh, but he's left Everett a little fail-safe device, which is an app. On his iPad, he clicks it, opens it up, and, and, and out of it unfolds the infundibulum which is what Everett's dad's been working on. He's a quantum physicist exploring the many worlds theory. Always a hint in the character name. <laughs> um What he has discovered is the map of all the possible parallel universes. So far, only 10 universe- Earth, Earth is earth earth, earth, earth earth, 10, uh, have, using a device called a Heisenberg gate, got in contact with each other, more or less by hit and miss. But to have the map that that allows you to travel anywhere or open a gateway anywhere in any of the billions and billions of possible parallel of parallel universes is a is a pearl beyond price, and it's the reason everett's dad has been kidnapped by the bad guys who want his information so Everett of course goes on the run across parallel universe to try and to to try and get his dad back. And in the process, he jumps to Earth Three, which is an Earth that never had any oil. Uh, they had coal, and they discovered electricity late in the 18th century. So they had um, electricity and rudimentary electronics, kind of um, early, in the, early in the 19th century. And he falls in with an, air, an airship crew because, as parallel worlds, you have to have airships. Mm-hmm. He, he, fall, he falls in with an airship crew, and his adventure ensues.
2: So how did you settle on the wor- the
0: term infundibulum for the world traveling device? It's Kurt Vonnegut, isn't it? It's the chronosynclastic infundibulum. Do you like the way I just trotted that out there? <laughs> it just slid off it, the chronosynclastic infundibulum. And it also gets a mention in Little Big as well, uh, John Crowley's Little Big, where with the, with the structure of the world is infundibular. The further in you go, the bigger it gets. Mm. Technically, classically, an infant is a funnel shape. Anything shaped like a funnel. And I think I and John Crowley and uh, probably use it in the opposite sense to uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, in that the way we take it is, you start at the spout end and and, and gradually and the further in you go, the bigger it gets and it unfolds into into many many worlds. But certainly, I I mean, I like a good a good mouth filling <laughs> word. So you know you you mentioned that a lot of the book
2: takes place in this parallel London where oil was never used. uh Could you just talk about sort of how you got that idea and how plausible you think that that parallel world is?
0: I read a thing in New Scientist uh a couple of years back and it was kind of what ifs in science and it was a fascinating one um there's the usual stuff you know Babbage and the and the uh and the calculating engine and all that that's that's okay. But there's a fascinating one. I think it's Cavendish, possibly. I can't, I'm terrible with names. I can hardly remember names. But it might have been uh, Cavendish, the uh, English scientist, almost discovered the electric motor in, a, in the 1780s. If he'd done uh, if he'd done something different, he would have discovered the electric motor and therefore also the electric generator. And instead of the dark satanic mills of the 19th century, of the 19th century, it would, it would all run on electricity. And I kind of find the idea of kind of a, a electrically powered 18th century very, very cool indeed. Uh, so I thought, well, why not just take away the oil, so they don't have any internal combustion engines? I wanted to have airships as well, because um, you have to have airships. Parallel worlds, you have to have airships. I was trying to think what's a feasible world that would have airships, well, one that's one that doesn't have jet engines. And uh, why wouldn't they have jet engines? Because they don't have any liquid fuel. Uh, why, they don't, why, why don't why why don't they have liquid fuel? Because da, 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 da. ah yeah, because they don't have oil. And then couple that with the whole the whole idea of, of them discovering electrical power in the eighteen hundreds, and 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 you got a so sorry in the seventeen hundreds. And I, I suddenly had a world I really really liked. And it's then kind of extrapolating that into a present, you know, a twenty eleven in Earth three, which is which is what this parallel world is. Uh, that um you know that kind of seems convincing there is another uh, parallel world uh, earth 2 which i refer to which which i'll be coming back to later in the series which which is alternate geography which is where britain not ireland ireland's uh, ireland's fine where britain is an island lying off the the, the 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 island of britain lies just off the coast of spain and morocco so it's um Alberac, it's known as um, a play on Alwin um, so it's this kind of um, very cool high tech Moorish kind of uh, Moorish London and I, I shall be coming back to that because I like it a lot it's, a, it's, it's an extremely cool universe uh, I've got several, several others as well but I can't mention them because it's giving the game away hmm. but, there's some, but the, there will be some very very cool stuff indeed
1: Uh, So the book features a lot of invented slang. Uh, How did you go about inventing those words, and uh, what are some of your favorites that you made up? I didn't invent it. I
0: stole it. I stole (laughs) it, hope so. I'm a big fan of Polari. Polari is an old English, uh, British, London, secret gay language. Homosexuality was illegal until I have a feeling it was the late 60s, early 70s. Somebody can correct me on this. Um, I don't know the data, but it was fairly late in the day, and uh, so so to be gay was very was very very much underground. Um, people were prosecuted and sent to jail. Uh, reputations were ruined, and like any underground organisation or any underground culture, they they invented their own language, and it wasn't much invented. It was it was borrowed. It was stolen as well, um, a bit, and, and a bit of thievery. Um, it was stolen from older subculture languages like Thieves' Cant, bits of rhyming slang, bits of backslang, where you say a word backwards, uh, bits of Romany, bits of Lingua Franca, which was the old kind of Mediterranean trading language, and bits of fairground, cant as well, and it became Polari it was pretty well known in in um, in England actually and it's given lots and lots of words to contemporary english like the word naff meaning bad or, or or trashy you know that's like a really naff hat um is originally a polari word and i've been looking around for a slang uh i didn't want to use anything that was contemporary because it's going to sound rubbish in about about 3 months time and i didn't want to make something up either because it wouldn't have the feel of a used language, I'd be making up words for the wrong things, or things just wouldn't sit right or be used right. And then I remembered Polare. I thought, why not? So, you know, why not give, why not have these guys use the old secret gay language in a, in a parallel universe? It's um, and I, and I and I transpose it from Polari to Palari, which is a variant, actually, a variant spelling of it added a couple of new words from original Romany roots, and and hey, I had a a proper London subculture uh, secret language. And and if I can do my little bit to kind of keep Polari alive in some form or another, I'd be very, very happy to do that.
1: Tarot cards uh, feature prominently on the cover of the book, uh, except that they're not the tarot cards we're familiar with. Uh, How did you go about developing your alternate tarot deck?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, William Blake is the answer. Um, I'm a huge fan of William Blake, as all right-thinking people should be. And there's some fabulous um, artwork he did. Uh, just it, it's just a series of small plates. Each of them looks like uh, a tarot card, and each of them is absolutely unforgettable as soon as you see them. Um, they've been copied umpteen times, and actually they've actually made their way into some people's tarot decks and other fortune decks and role-playing decks. There's this famous one of a stormy sea with this this one hand reaching out of the stormy sea with the words help, help written under it. And, you know, once you've seen that, you never, ever forget that. And that kind of inspired me, got me thinking about building your own tarot deck that's kind of specific to your own life and your own people and the places you are and the people who surround you.
2: Uh, so you mentioned that the hero of the book Everett Singh is named after Hugh Everett, who created the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, yeah, I, I read this article recently where they were saying that Hugh Everett actually believed that the many worlds interpretation implied immortality for everyone. I was just wondering if you'd ever heard of that, or if you had any thoughts about yeah. that. Yeah,
0: yeah, I've done a story on the it's 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 the quantum immortality paradox, isn't it, where you where you stand in a room facing a gun triggered by a quantum event, and the quantum event happens, the gun either fires or it doesn't. Uh, it's, It's something to do with, if I remember rightly, you can't be, because you can't perceive your own death, therefore you must always remain in that universe where the gun doesn't fire. And therefore, because you can't perceive your own death, you must always end up in the universe that's most favourable to 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 the universe where you never die. So no bad accident will ever happen to you, no fatal disease will ever happen to you because you must always be in the universe where you never die. Eventually they will. You you in the you will get to the point. Well, yeah, where they you know where they will invent immortality for you and you will continue living on as well. The problem with for that for that with me appealing as it seems is that it banishes everyone. It's it's like the it's it's like the complete sort of. Solipsistic masturbation fantasy. You know, everyone ends up in their own private universe that works just for them. That's only perfect for them, and in a sense, no one else and nothing else is real. They're all just quantum echoes of other quantum states.
2: Have you uh, you said you wrote a story using that idea?
0: Yeah, it was in Pete Crowther's postscripts, uh it was a it was a Brazil my one and only Brazil spin off story, and I've forgotten the name of it now. Um, Ghost Samba is called It's about a guy who goes in search of a an unfinished album uh, by a musician who died and I kind of play around with that with that with that with that quantum immortality idea
2: okay so finally uh, do you just want to talk about what you're working on now what you have coming up
0: yeah uh, uh, book two plain, uh, everness book two everness it's called everness book two everness is delivered Lou is reading it John Picasso is working on the cover not sure what, what we have it scheduled for but it'll be sometime this year because we want to get them whacked out bam 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 I've got book three in the series planned. It's going to be fun. And I'm reworking an outline and sample chapters for the next grown up novel, uh, Hopeland. Uh, every 10 years it's time to reinvent myself as a writer. So hence, hence, hence the YA series, the, the, the younger reader series. I hate the expression YA. God. Um, <laughs> the younger reader series. And I also thought it was time to kill off what I call the New World Order uh, series, the, um, you know, uh, River of Gods Brazil, the Dervish House. It's time time to move on from that. So And try something new. It'll still be near future. I've always set stuff in the near future, and it's beginning ever closer to the present. It was 2047 River of Gods, 2032 for Brazil, 2027 for... Uh, The dervish has, and this one starts so near future, it's actually last August, during the Tottenham riots. So, ever closer to the now.
2: All right, well, Ian MacDonald, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Thank you very much for asking me, it's a pleasure.
2: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ian MacDonald for joining us on the show. And now we're back with more Matt London for part two of our discussion of upcoming... Movie adaptations of famous fantasy and science fiction novels. And, okay, so the first one we're going to talk about is Starship Troopers. Now, you may be saying they already made a movie out of that, but they're doing it again. I I found this thing. It says, Sony Pictures' uber-producer Neil Moritz has decided that the time has come to reboot Paul Verhoeven's 1997 fascist classic Starship Troopers. He has assigned the scripts to screenwriters Ashley Edward Miller and Zach Stentz. Who, among other things, wrote Thor and X Men: First Class, as well as many episodes of the TV shows Terminator: The Sarah Connor Chronicles and Fringe.
1: I like the idea of them remaking it now because maybe they'll actually have some power armor in it. Because um, I mean, that was—I uh, I mean, I love—I actually love the the movies, the Verhoeven version of Starship Troopers. Um, even though it's, you know, it's—I mean. Partially because it's actually totally not faithful to the book. Uh, I mean, it's like the story is faithful, but, like, the tone of it is completely different than the book. Um, And I kind of love it. Um, And I think think a lot of people who hate on it, like, they don't get what it's doing. They think it's, like, trying to be, like, a straight film, whereas it's obviously satirical. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked before, I think, about how
2: the the Starship Troopers movie was actually in production as a completely unrelated movie called, like, Bug Hunt on Alpha 6 or something. Hmm. And then, you know, they just sort of incorporated elements from the novel into it. Um, I actually kind of like it too as, as a B movie, but I sure (laughs) wouldn't mind seeing an A movie (laughs) made out of Starship Troopers. Uh, A a review was saying that the, the people who bemoan the Paul Verhoeven movie and want to see uh, a more faithful adaptation of the book may, they want to be careful what they wish for, because if you go back and read the book, it's mostly politics and philosophy and, and not a lot of bug blasting. Mm-hmm. And actually, I like I like all the politics and philosophy, so that would be just fine with me. I mean, nothing uh, would get me more excited than a really well argued debate about whether
3: veterans should be the only ones who are allowed to vote. You know, mm-hmm. I live for that stuff. But
1: uh... <laughs> they should get Aaron Sorkin to write it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: So first of all, let me tell you a little bit about Neil Moritz. Um, Here is a guy who has been described as the producer of a billion movies. Um, he sort of came to prominence in the late 90s doing, um, sort of like those, those like classic WB turned schlock horror, uh, movie franchises. He was involved in I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Cruel Intentions, The Skulls, and then, um, sort of went the action route right around 2000, 2001 with The Fast and the Furious. And so he's sort of like the figurehead ...of that franchise. And you can imagine it's made him a gazillion dollars, right? So he can kind of do whatever he wants, which includes um, TV series like True Calling, Point Pleasant, uh, Prison Break, The Big C on Showtime. And in the last couple of years, he's been making a lot of medium-budget action movies like The Green Hornet, Battle Los Angeles... He's involved in the 21 Jump Street movie, movie. Um, and then, you know, he's sort of now is taking a bunch of these classic uh, sci-fi fantasy franchises and rebooting them all around the same time. So he's working on the Total Recall remake, he's working on the Highlander remake, uh, and he's working on this. You know, if you look at his sort of filmography, you see a big spectrum in terms of the movies that he's worked on that are you know really fun and good and then some that are you know (laughs) totally forgettable
2: (laughs) i mean but it it sounds like my hopes for an a movie starship troopers are maybe a little uh, over optimistic
3: well he made i am legend and he made evan almighty those, that's <laughs> sort of the; those are the ends of the spectrum.
1: Well, I mean, I Am um, Legend at least attempted to be in A movie. I don't think it succeeded, but I mean, at least it was a trying for that. Uh, well, I
2: mean, and John mentioned the power armor. Do you think the honestly the only like
3: power armor I can think of has been in that GI Joe movie? The best good example is probably the climax of Aliens, uh, when Ripley fights the the Queen. In yeah, well, order. that thing's cool. I don't know if I would call that power armor exactly. Yeah, you John? know, I mean, uh, well, you know, I
1: mean, uh, for I, I wasn't sure I would count that either. I mean, for, well, first of all, it's not, it's not power armor. It's a, it's a mech, if anything. But you know, uh, when I was doing my armored anthology, I asked all the, you know, I interviewed all the authors and asked them to like, you know, name their favorite, um, examples of power armor in fiction or film or whatever. And, uh, a very large percentage of people cited that Ripley scene. So, um, I'm inclined to sort of, uh, go ahead and say, yes, it counts, but, um, yeah, but I mean, as far as making the distinction between power armor and mechs goes, I would say that that's more of a mech. Um, as far as power armor goes in movies, I, I mean, I mean, Iron Man, obviously that's power armor. Mm. Um, other than that uh not much comes to mind uh i'm not sure if anything actually would come to mind um there are other mechs um there i mean there's a mech in avatar you know there's that robot jock's movie uh from i don't know when the 90s sometime and i mean there's probably been other mechs around uh that uh, well in uh, I,
2: uh district 9
1: yeah so that i mean that was a mech as well and or i think that that was or was that more like power armor <laughs> I, I can't remember now see it's uh, a fine remember.
3: there's a fine line between <laughs> well mech i mean the power armor
1: uh, well, I mean, in, in in District Nine, I think like the 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 piece of equipment was fairly small. Re- I mean, relatively, um, you know. So, like, uh, I mean, when he moved his arm, does the armor of the armor move, or was
3: he like it, was he more like in the cockpit? Because I was about to say that the distinction is like you look at animated television series in the '90s. It's mm-hmm. like Exo Squad is power armor, and you know, Battletech or Mech Warrior is uh is is mech. But right. from what you're describing. If the suit in District 9 is mech and the suit in Avatar is mech, then it's just the Space Marine that qualifies as body armor. Space Marine, Iron Man, that kind of.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think basically the distinction between power and a mech is a mech is something that you're, it's like a giant, it's like a giant thing that you're inside and, and you control it, but you're, you're controlling it like from a cockpit. You know, it's not like when you when you move your arm, your arm is actually in the
3: armor of the of the. But that is what happens in Avatar. The dude, the evil dude in Avatar. John, is... John, I
2: think John John's saying that the evil dude in Avatar, his arm is moving the arm of the of the thing, but his arm isn't inside the arm of the thing.
1: Right. He's in a cockpit doing controlling it. So that's a mech.
3: Maybe I'm forgetting what happens in Avatar, but I thought that the guy like. Wears this suit and the 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 machine sort of mimics the motions of his body as he moves.
1: Well, it does mimic the movements of his body, but like Dave was saying, like his arm is not inside the arm of the machine.
3: He's in it. He's 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 not not wearing it.
2: But so I mean, so like a Starship Troopers movie with 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 the power armor done as well as the mech thing is done in District Nine, that would be pretty
3: cool. Yeah, I mean, I think they're gonna write the guy a blank check. Like Mm -hmm. everything he touches turns to gold. So they're going to give them a lot of money. They're going to make a big, big Hollywood blockbuster movie. I can't believe it's going to be anything like the actual book.
2: The uh, politics of Starship Troopers are fairly controversial. And mm-hmm. Verhoeven's approach to that was to satirize them. And I think if you're going to make it, remake the movie, it would be interesting to play it totally straight and, and totally buy into the politics mm-hmm. of the book. And I don't know if that's something we can expect because because Hollywood is it's very not about putting forward controversial messages that the filmmakers don't agree with themselves just mm-hmm.
3: because it's interesting. Zero risk, maximum dollar intake. Hmm. That's the that's the bottom line for every right. Yeah, I mean, always so it's gonna you know it's gonna look really cool. There's gonna be some awesome stuff in it. It may be very well written. It may be poorly written but it's it's not going to challenge our perceptions of film not not with this not with this development team
2: i guess you know matt also mentioned total recall and that's not on our list but maybe we can just mention it briefly since it is you know an adaptation of the philip k dick short story mm-hmm. um john and i talked a lot about total recall um mm-hmm. uh, back in i think it's episode 18 uh with eric garcia so go listen to that if if you if you want our uh, long critique of of total mm-hmm. recall but uh we were sort of hoping that it would be more, not necessarily more like the short story because the short story is pretty weird and, and I think hard to film, but more Philip K. Dick in its mood and, and focusing more on ish, the issues of identity and uh, paranoia and stuff and, and less on the blowing stuff up on Mars kind of stuff. Uh, have you guys heard anything? I, I saw there was a like a, a, a still from the Total Recall movie of a car or something. Uh, has anything sort of come out about what we can expect from that?
3: The remake of Total Recall is done shooting. They're in post-production. It is coming out in 2012. The cast is really good uh, with you know Colin Farrell and ugh, Kate Beckinsale as the leading roles. But then you've got Bill Nye, Brian Cranston, John Cho, Ethan Hawke, cool people. Total Recall remake is being directed by Len Weissman, who I probably should have known from the fact that Kate Beckinsale was in the movie uh that he's married to Kate Beckinsale huh. and has directed like the ninety-five underworld films that have come. Oh, out. oh seriously? Um, he also has directed uh Live Free or Die Hard. Die uh. Hard 4, right? So he was a prop he was a prop master uh in Hollywood for years and worked on like big, big Hollywood movies in the nineties, Stargate, Independence Day, Men in Black. Godzilla, classics all, right? (laughs) Um, And then started directing these movies, uh, these vampire versus werewolves, totally original cutting-edge movies. (laughs) Um, And, uh, yeah, and now he's doing this. So it's going to be another schlocky movie. It's like, you know, I hate to be that bitter fan, but, uh, you know, if you're remaking a schlocky movie and your director is schlocky, what is? what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up yeah. with a, a schlocky remake of a schlocky movie.
2: Okay, so next on the list, uh, Foundation, based on the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov. Uh, if you don't know, the premise of this is that there it's in the future, and there's a guy named Harry Seldon who uh, invented this scientific discipline called psychohistory that enables you to predict the broad sweeps of future history. And so so... Harry has uh, his psychohistorical projections have revealed to him that this galactic empire that's endured for thousands of years, I think, uh, is inevitably going to collapse. And so he uh, puts together a group of people uh, who are going to preserve learning through this dark age that's going to come. And this is his foundation. And, and, and no psychohistorians are allowed to be part of the foundation because if, if there were any, uh, they might screw things up by uh, – in order for psychohistory to work, one of the assumptions is that no psychohistorian is uh,
3: involved uh, in, in – let me, let, me, let me start that all over. <clears throat> <laughs> Can and, I just say really quick, really quick, that the foundation movie is not going to be foundation, and this is why. <laughs> you're one of the best people in the business that's sort of deconstructing these really complex plots and concepts that are in science fiction texts, and you're struggling to <sighs> articulate what the hell this book's about. And for decades, fans of the series have been doing the exact same thing. Um, and so there's absolutely no way that Hollywood is going to take the complex core of this series... And stay true to that. Stay true to it. I, I just can't believe they will, particularly because Roland Emmerich is, is spearheading the project. Like, it's going to be a thriller. Harry Seldon was a man. Imperial agents want his secrets for telling the future. A political thriller across the galaxy. And of course, in Independence Day, Roland Emmerich had aliens blow up the Earth. And then, you know, in this, he'll have you know humans blow up the whole galaxy
1: <laughs> I, I mean i know what you're saying about foundation and like how like it presents these tremendous difficulties like in ter- in terms of just getting the concept across you know and if it was being spearheaded by anyone other than roland emmerich maybe i would uh maybe i would have a different take i mean i, I agree with you because it's roland emmerich that it's not going to be foundation but um i i mean i don't know that i would say that it that it couldn't be adapted i mean cuz like i mean you could probably say the same thing about dune that dune you know you, you you would never be able to adapt dune into a movie right but i mean it's been adapted and uh you know more than once now I um, mean, i guess they're remaking that as well but
3: are you talking you're talking about the david lynch film from the yeah. 80s mm-hmm, the- mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean that that movie is sort of universally panned as being one of the worst films ever made <laughs>
1: um, oh i don't and- know about that oh yeah a lot of people, lot of people love that movie i, I don't people love it, but... at
2: science fiction conventions <laughs> <laughs> Well, did he have to cut it down from like eight hours to
3: exactly? <laughs> a, I mean, it's a notorious, it's a notorious flop in huh. in the sort of echelon of Jie and Heaven's Gate and like huh. the cata- utter catastrophes. I guess the the conventional wisdom is that yes, you can adapt one of these huge, heady books. Dune has been adapted several times, but it hasn't really ever been adapted well. And that's because it's just, it's just too big.
2: But I mean, so like with Asimov, right, you have iRobot, which was turned into a movie that has nothing to do <laughs> with the book. Exactly. Uh, you have, I don't know if anyone ever saw the Nightfall movie. It's, it's horrendous. It's sort of like a softcore porn, <laughs> full budget kind of movie, from what I remember. Uh, Bicentennial Man. I never mm-hmm. saw it because it has rob- Robin Williams as a robot, and it's just more horrible <laughs> than I can even imagine.
3: A lot of people hate that a lot of people hate that movie. I actually like that movie because I can sort of get into that my like sentimental zone and enjoy it. I actually like the Bicentennial Man movie better than the story, but I think that the place to really look for what Hollywood does with Asimov is that iRobot movie.
1: Well, that was again, like you were saying, uh, about Starship Troopers. I mean, that was a case where the screenplay was sort of floating around Hollywood for years. And, and then when the, when the director took over, he's like, he started calling it iRobot. And then they just grafted on the Asimov stuff onto an existing screenplay. So it's no surprise it didn't have anything to do with the book. Although I don't know how you could have adapted it into a movie. I mean, not to a contemporary movie. I mean, obviously Harlan Ellison wrote like this epic screenplay based on iRobot years ago that had been around for years and years. I mean, you can buy it in published form, but, uh, I mean, nobody nobody was ever going to make a Hollywood movie out of that.
2: I was going to say, like, while we're on Asimov's, maybe we should talk about The Caves of Steel. Because that actually, that would make a pretty good movie, I think. It's not like Foundation. It's not it's not the same sort of difficult to adapt sort of thing. I think it's actually more sort of like the iRobot movie. The Caves of Steel actually bears more mm-hmm. resemblance to the iRobot movie than the iRobot movie bears to the iRobot book. Um, but so The Caves of Steel, basically, it's it's in the future. It's in New York City. And the whole city is sort of enclosed and people spend so so much time enclosed and underground that they actually uh, are afraid to, to go outside. The sort of the sight of an open sky just freaks them out. And so nobody ever goes outside anymore. And uh, there's a, a sort of commissioner guy is murdered. Oh, no, I guess it was a robot scientist was murdered. And uh, and so this detective is assigned to investigate the murder, and his partner is a robot who is designed in the image of this uh, of the murder victim.
3: It is a uh, a much more straightforward sort of Hollywood story. I think it comes from, you know, he wanted to make a detective story first and a science fiction story second. So yeah, I think I think this could be a good movie. Um, but the, I think the concern though is that you know, it's one of those adaptations that no one will know it's an adaptation. I don't think that the Caves of Steel has the name recognition um, of a Foundation or Starship Troopers.
2: I was just going to say on the subject of, uh, of detective fiction and science fiction, there's this really good essay in the back of Larry Niven's book, uh, The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton, where he talks about kind of the history of that. And he says that, you know, this sort of It sort of got started because John W. Campbell, the editor of Astounding Magazine, uh, probably the most influential editor uh, in the history of science fiction, had said that he didn't in the early days, that he didn't think that you could write a science fiction detective story because a detective novel uh, depends upon you sort of having the ground rules set, the sort of ground rules of reality. And in a science fiction story, you would never be able to know whether time travel was involved or... You know, who some alien, or who even who even knows what kind of elements could come in. So, but so 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 Niven's sort of thing he says is that to write a good science fiction detective story, you have to just there has to be an understanding between the the reader and the writer that any science fiction element instrumental to the solution to the mystery is going to be introduced <laughs> in the story. You know mm-hmm. that you're not going to get to the end and find out that time travel was involved when there was no hint of a time machine earlier in the
3: story. I think that. I read something where it said that Asimov was actually responding to that Campbell-like sort of proclamation that mystery and science fiction were incompatible as genres, that, that the Caves of Steel was actually Asimov's response. Uh, it's just such a stupid idea to think that they are incompatible in any way. I mean, you just look at the like uh, the city in the city, uh, the Yiddish Policemen's Union red mars there's i mean there's a thousand of these examples
2: well in terms of campbell he was very canny about getting authors to write stories for him and i, I, I almost I, have to wonder if he said
3: that just to provoke people to prove him wrong yeah i think that's that's really astute i think the i think you might be dead on there
2: yeah well yeah so i mean let's move on then to the next thing on our list which is the forever war uh, by joe haldeman Um, if you haven't read the book, the basic premise is that there are, uh, it's in the future and there are soldiers who are sent through these collapsar wormhole kind of things to fight against aliens. Uh, and this involves relativistic effects. So these guys go off for what are them relatively short tours of duty, but then long, long periods of time have passed back on earth. And so basically it's sort of like a time travel story almost where each time they come back from a campaign, earth is completely different. Um the thing that the, the thing I've always that has stuck with me the most is one time they come back and in order to control overpopulation the entire human race has been in- engineered to be gay. And so this is uh being adapted by Ridley Scott uh based on a screenplay by Matthew Michael Carnahan uh working on a script originally written by Blade Runner scribe David Peoples.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, when uh, when Matt was uh, sort of lamenting how um, it's it would be impossible to have this sort of you know transcendent uh, science fiction film that's both a think thing, a think piece, and uh, and and an action movie. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I was thinking, like, oh well, actually, I mean, maybe the Forever War has a shot. I mean, with Ridley Scott at the helm, and it's based and it's based on a, a, a screenplay originally written by David Peoples. I mean, that's a that's a that's a good pairing. I mean, you know the you know because Ridley Scott. Um, to Blade Runner as well. So, I mean, it's like reuniting this uh, team that, that produced, uh, you know, one of the best uh, science fiction films ever.
3: I love this book. Uh, it's one of my favorite sort of classic sci-fi texts. Um, you t- Dave, you talking about the uh, genetically engineered gayness made me think of the, the time when they come back and there is a black market for jobs because there's so many people and no work. And so people are, like, outsourcing their own jobs and taking a cut, and then the people that they get outsourced to then divide it amongst, like, five people. So, like, one person goes in on Mondays, the other person on, like, Tuesdays and Thursdays. It's this ridiculous thing, but, you know, you look at sort of unemployment in this country and others and how rotten the economy is going, and uh, pretty pressing thinking from from Joe Haldeman. John, I think you're right that this is the one of all of them that really may have the shot. It is a very thoughtful piece. Um, it kind of hurts when you read it because it's, it's very accusatory. You know, Haldeman was a Vietnam vet. He wrote the book very much with Vietnam in mind. He was very angry uh, when he wrote this book. And um, so it could be a kick in the teeth for a lot of of viewers. But at the same time, it has... A lot of wild special effects, great action sequences, really intense sequences, um and a love story at the center of it it's it It is sort of a a real Hollywood war movie um set amongst the stars. The Blade Runner team up, I totally think has potential, but again, you know, Ridley Scott is not the director that he was in nineteen eighty two you know his last couple of films have been. You know, what? American Gangster, Robin Hood, A Good Year, Body of Lies. I'd bet that neither of you have seen any of those movies. <laughs> I saw Robin he Hood. Robin Hood? He certainly Hood. made okay. a bunch of turkeys. You know, because cause really Scott's one of those directors that is sort of two directors, if you think about it. He's like Thelma Louise, Louise, Matchstickman on one side, and like gladiator black hawk down on the other side and n- neither of those movies are alien and blade runner right he's he's not the same director he was so i think that you know what we can probably expect at best uh is gladiator and at worst kingdom of heaven i'm a big really scott fan i think his i think he's one of the best directors working today Because he can make entertaining sort of like popcorn movies that have a lot more gravitas than, than the stuff of like Roland Emmerich, Hmm. right? But he hasn't had a movie that's knocked my socks off the way that Alien and Blade Runner did. Maybe that's just the novelty of time, right? Older movies tend to have this uh invisible force field around them you can't touch them because they're classics right Mm -hmm. that said the prometheus trailer looks awesome so who (laughs) knows maybe he's going back to his roots and wouldn't it be great if prometheus was the second coming of alien and then right after that forever war can be the second coming of blade runner
2: i mean it seems like forever war does present some adaptation challenges though i mean it's inevitably sort of episodic right Mm -hmm. And there's very, very episodic, big jumps in time, and those are those are two things that film generally doesn't handle well.
3: Well, there are big jumps in time, but not for the characters, right? It is all relative. It's it's relative jumps in time, right? So, it's not like you have to change the actor playing Mandala every single scene, right? For him, only what ten years pass over the course of the film.
2: Well, no, yeah, I mean that's true, but you do have to sort of explain how Earth has changed right every what 20 minutes of screen time or something and that's a a big thing especially i mean you're getting into you were getting into the the job sharing thing i mean that's something hard to explain on screen yeah
3: well i don't think that's i mean i think that what will happen is one thing that really scott is really good at is establishing a world through design right whether it be music lighting architecture background actors, props, all that stuff. You know, what makes that world of Blade Runner come alive is all those people shuffling around in the background and the ridiculous video billboards, Harrison Ford eating his udon. You know, that's what creates the world of the story. And I think that he can do very much the same kind of thing to establish, like, the different future Earths in forever war my guess is that a majority of the of the movie is going to be you know the girl getting blown up during basic training and the scene where the woman gets like not teleported through the hyperspace properly and her seatbelts all wrapped around her head like all of those sort of like nail biting sequences in the book are what are going to translate directly into the movie and the other stuff is just going to be pulled out of Ridley Scott's very creative butt hmm.
2: well I mean how about the the future in which everyone's gay I mean is that something that's going to make it into a big budget special effects Hollywood movie I mean you just look at like they sort of down I, I gather they sort of there was a lot of pressure for them to downplay the gay aspects of um, Alexander and stuff like that I mean is that going to uh, be retained you think
3: I think it could be. I think th- I, I I worry that if they kept it in, they would keep it in as a punchline
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, and not actually as something that, you know, people should, not the serious issue of overpopulation. It would be a joke, right? It it would be a bunch of people, a bunch of people caressing each other of the same sex and talking about it and then cut to the grizzled Marines going, and that's the scene. Like, it, I can't imagine that they would, treat that with the intention that Haldeman initially intended. Um
2: all right, well then let's let's move on to our next Ridley Scott movie then, because uh he's also reportedly going to be adapting Philip K. Dick's novel The Man in the High Castle. Uh what is, but this is going to be a BBC four-part adaptation. Uh, let's see so The Man in the High Castle it's uh the prim- it's a a future in which or I guess I mean now it's an alternate past in which uh uh, the Allies lost World War II, and the United States is partitioned between uh, a sort of a German-occupied half and a Japanese-occupied half. Uh, in, in this, uh, in this world, there's a uh, a sort of a novelist who's writing an no- an alternate history novel about uh, a world in which the Allies won World War II, mm-hmm. but it's not our; it's, it's a
3: completely different world than our world, uh, which I always thought was pretty clever. So the man, in the high castle. I think is a really difficult book to adapt. There's a ton of POV characters. They all have various agendas. They're, none of them are really on screen that much for a long time. Uh, so it it is a, it's an ensemble piece. And I think that the cleverness that you were just talking about really is the star of the show. I think this would make a really bad movie. Um, made maybe a little bit better by it being a miniseries. You can dedicate episodes to different characters and foci of the, of the story. Really Scott's producing this, I imagine, not directing it. Um, if he was directing it, I, my response would be, I'll believe it when I see <laughs> it. Uh, really Scott tends to talk about every project he's working on, like it's about to happen in five minutes. Um, and then it's 10 years before what? the prometheus movie comes out or this blade runner remake that he's that he's been talking about that movie's never going to really happen like come on do you think they might just take the
2: basic premise of a occupied united states that's half german and half japanese and just build something from there without really referencing anything else from the book
3: totally and this is an example where i think i think it would be a smart move for them to do that in this situation to take what's a brilliant concept that's always talked about, but we've never really seen in mainstream cinema, and really do it. I think that'd be great. I'd love to see that movie, but I wouldn't really want to see a Man in the High Castle movie.
1: Um, Although I am also a little bit more uh, a little bit more optimistic due to the fact that it's going to be a, you know, mini series rather than a movie. I mean, actually when we were talking about forever war, I was thinking that like forever war, given its episodic nature, might actually work better as a, as a sort of a limited run series or, mm. or mean, even a full series given that, you know, Haldeman has written other novels set in that milieu, you know, we've seen very, very little alternate history done in, um, in, in, in film. So, I mean, it, it's actually kind of interesting to
3: see someone attempting it at all. We may have actually been talking about this not long ago, but uh, the only example of alternate history I can think of in mainstream cinema came out just a couple years ago with uh, *Inglorious Bastards.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't think of anything either. And I mean, it's actually kind of funny that even to say that the movie is alternate history is a spoiler because, you know, (laughs) like the, the movie is entirely presented as a historical film until you get to the end. And then you discover like, oh, well, there's this alternate history aspect that comes into play. And I actually love that. There was a I mean there was a a
2: a book it was it was a alternate history it was published you know um outside science fiction called Fatherland and that was a de- you know about um a present in which uh the Germans won World War II and they made a movie out of that I I just caught like the end of it on TV one time or mm-hmm. something
3: There's also a mockumentary that came out a few years ago called CSA the Confederate States of America um, oh, yeah. which sort of is like Two hours of TV in the Confederate States of America, but yeah, I mean, but you can tell that there are not a lot of examples. Here we are struggling. <laughs> to Actually, that that CSA, truth. I saw,
2: I saw that. I mean, I, yeah. I forget. I, I saw a screening of it, and the director talked about it and stuff. But I thought it was it was not that interesting. But the uh, the ads were fascinating. Uh,
3: well, that you know, and it's so funny because that's what he spends the sort of like epitaph of the film talking about is these advertisements this sort of you know deeply buried racist iconography that has sustained itself for you know 150 years past slavery it's shocking when you see these ads because they don't seem that different from mainstream advertising and it is grossly racist but yeah there are no there are no classic alternate history films that you can really point to because both of those both of those examples are uh from the last few years it's
1: actually kind of funny that that's the case just because i mean you know hollywood has made so many historical films just like straight historical films you would think that like the thought of uh, alternate history would actually be appealing because it gives you the opportunity to you know to do something different with this formula that's proven to work you know, because like, oh, well, people love watching World War II movies or whatever. And it's like, oh, well, here's a World War II movie where you can actually do something that's different than what everybody's seen before. Um, and yet uh, no one's actually taken advantage of that. All right. And then last
2: on our list, we have Lensman, a classic space opera series by Doc E.E. E. Doc Smith. Ron Howard's Imagine Entertainment and Universal Pictures began negotiations with the author's estate for the rights to film the Lensman series. At the WonderCon convention in San Francisco in 2008, J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, confirmed that Howard had acquired the rights and also hinted that he was involved in the project as well.
3: It's what DC ripped off Green Lantern, right? Green Lantern's basically Lensman. Lensman's sort of the story of this, you know, space patrol. It's big budget, it's epic, there's lots of action and stuff. I I doubt that they would adhere very carefully to the original text. It's really old. The other thing to think about is, okay, so the most recent news we have on this project is from 2008. That's four years ago, right? Straczynski, I like a lot, but has not been doing very much in Hollywood since he left Spider-Man. Ron Howard obviously has a gazillion things on his plate. It's an option. I, I don't think this movie's coming for a long time. Um, and if it does, it'll be in a very different sort of incarnation than, than what what we imagine it 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 probably would be
2: well i mean matt you mentioned green lantern being really similar to lensman and that was not well received i didn't i didn't see it uh do you think that 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 the sort of uh lukewarm reaction to green lantern heralds a similar fate for
3: lensman or i don't know how aware the suits at the studios will be about the compare the connections between Lensman and, and Green Lantern, but if they are seeing as how Lensman is so early on in the development process, it could totally kill the project. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I mean Green Lantern. The the trailer I didn't see it, but the trailer for Green Lantern. Green Lantern was so terrible that, I mean, there's no way I was going to go see it. I mean, and coupled with the fact that the posters for it that I saw everywhere and the like the mass marketing campaign they had for it, like every still of it that I saw looked terrible. <laughs> it's like it was just like there was just one thing on top of another. If I ever saw if I ever see it and I actually think it's good or even halfway decent, I will be so surprised. I, I won't even know what to say.
3: The trailer, I don't think knew what it was really marketing to some of the some of the commercials. Got a little closer. Like some of the good stuff that people were saying about the movie in anticipation of the film is that it was keeping really true to the sort of history of Green Lantern. You know, he looks like Green Lantern. He's got the silly ring. He does crazy stuff with it. Um, he says the oath. Like that's all cool stuff, right? And, and best of all, it really brings in the sort of galactic federation of lanterns that is really cool and you can imagine that film studios would really want to underplay Um, but at the same time the trailer is like you know in this movie you will see ryan reynolds you will see ryan reynolds take off his shirt you will see ryan reynolds take off his shirt in outer space Hmm. the end come see this movie right like so of course people weren't going to go see it when uh when thor and x-men and a gazillion other movies were coming out the same summer
1: Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, uh, like as Matt was saying, the Lensman movie is probably not all that likely to happen just, uh, based on a uh, number of factors, including the terrible reception of Green Lantern. But I think the, by far the more likely Ron Howard adaptation we're going to see next is, uh, the Dark Tower adaptation, uh, which has been much, uh, talked about, um, you know, on and again, off again. But, uh, the latest, the latest incarnation is being talked about as, uh, for an HBO series. So uh, I don't know. I have, I have really high hopes for that. Cause I'm a big dark tower fan. Um, and, you know, if you don't know the dark tower is uh, Stephen King um, series, uh, the first book uh, is called the gunslinger. It's, you know, basically about uh, this gunslinger from the, uh, a world so from, from sort of this post-apocalyptic world. It's sort of, it's sort of a Western Western feel to it as well. And he's chasing after this man called the Man in black and he's looking for the dark tower. And, uh, uh, you know, there's sort of all this parallel world stuff that happens where, like, you know, the gunslinger gets taken from this uh, post-apocalyptic world and he's brought into, like, the real world and he, you know, interacts with uh, these people there. And uh, it's it's a very complicated story, but it's really I, – I really loved it. I mean, I know a lot of people uh, – there, there are – it has its detractors for sure, but, I mean um, – uh, the team, like Ron Howard, uh, being in charge of it, sounded great, and uh, they they're talking about Javier Bardem to play the the gunslinger Roland. Um, so, I mean, that seemed like a good choice. The, the, dark, the dark Tower sort, series sort of um, interfaces with a lot of King's other worlds. So, like, there's characters from Salem's Lot that show up in dark, in the Dark Tower, and and from various other um, books that King's written. So I mean, there's all kinds of uh, crazy connections that you can throw in there, and I, and I don't know if that actually makes it problematic to adapt because I don't know if like movie studios own the film rights to you know the characters oh, from cool. whatever yeah. movie they, and book or whatever. They do. Yeah, they do. So I mean, I don't know. But I, hey, would not it be spoiler. awesome
3: if Rob Lowe showed up in the HBO <laughs> series as his character from Salem's Lot? That would be pretty <laughs> sweet.
1: I'm I'm much more optimistic now that that they're talking about it as an HBO series, because like at first, like when they first talked about it, they were saying that it was going to be like a, a network series and there was going to be movies. So there was going to be like movies. There's going to be a movie and then there's going to be a network series that's going to fill in some gap between the first movie and the second movie or something. Like, I, I didn't understand at all how that was supposed to work. Speaking of HBO, too, I mean, you know, we should probably talk uh, at least in passing about uh, HBO is adapting uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman as well. Um, so that's another thing that we have potentially looked forward to. I, I I don't know that there's really all that many details at this point. Um, apparently, it uh, it was sort of leaked um, early by mistake. Like I, I I'm I'm not sure that it should have actually even been announced yet. Um, according to something I read on Neil Gaiman's blog, so it's like it's all sort of like the cart before the horse uh, a bit. But it does look like it's going to be happening. And uh, I mean, even to the extent that Neil Gaiman is now. Um, moving ahead writing the sequel to American Gods because I guess he needs to <laughs> in order for this series to actually work.
3: You know, um, I I had been holding out hope for a Sandman series for a long time. Yeah. So, you know, you know, after this, after the popularity, at least in our circles of the uh, Simpsons episode, I think <laughs> Neil Gaiman's probably ready for prime time. As, as
1: excited as I am to see Neil Gaiman getting the American Gods series on HBO, I mean, that would be great. But, yeah, I mean, Sandman is the real thing that I think everybody would like to see uh, adapted into a series uh, of Neil Gaiman's. Um, I mean, you know, there's other, there's other things that he's done that would probably make a, you know, because we get adapted into a movie or something, and that would be great. But, yeah, no, Sandman is the thing that I think everybody wants to see. And actually, we should work really well um, episodically because it, it, is, it is episodic.
2: All right. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for
3: having me back, guys. This was a lot of fun.
2: And thanks everyone for listening to our first episode, airing here on GeeksGuideShow.com.
3: And as always, you can uh,
1: help us out by going over to iTunes and leaving a review or rating there. Um, and uh, although we're no longer on iO9, uh, we like comments too. Um, <laughs> so you can come over to GeeksGuideShow.com. You can leave a comment there on our on our site and and let us know what you liked or didn't like about this episode. And also, if you want to support the show uh, financially, you can uh, go over to our website again at geeksguideshow.com, and you can uh, click on the PayPal button and uh, give us a donation. Uh, because as we mentioned at the top of the show, we are currently 100% listener funded. Um, so we're the sort of the NPR of the geek <laughs> crowd. Um, so if you want to keep hearing episodes, uh, you All know, right. if you can, uh, donate a little money now and then. And uh, if you do, we'd appreciate it. All right. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit
0: johnjosephadams.com or DavidBarCurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.